At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show featuring Jason Zuck. Jason has been an intuitive psychic medium since 2004. This show will cover a variety of topics relating to spirituality, mediumship, self-improvement, and intuitive guidance. Whatever interests you, remember that we are all here to share and learn. Sit back and get ready to socialize with the Social Psychic. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's with great pleasure that I have a special guest, Dr. Brian Wilson, on the show today. Brian Wilson is the author of a new book, Johnny Setzer and the Quest for the New Age. He's a professor of American religious history in the Department of Comparative Religion at Western Michigan University. It was during his years in the Peace Corps that he developed a fascination with religion initially fueled by what he experienced of the ancient religions of the Maya and Roman Catholicism. Returning to the United States, Dr. Wilson completed a PhD in religious studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he studied religion in the United States. In 1993, he co-authored a book, New Religious Movements in California. Wilson also wrote an award-winning book on serial inventor and the leading Seventh-day Adventist of his time, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. Based on the success of that book, the Fetzer Institute invited Wilson to write a full-length spiritual biography of its founder, John E. Fetzer. The Kalamazoo-based Fetzer was a radio pioneer, a media mogul, and longtime owner of the Detroit Tigers baseball team for over 30 years. Of his many pursuits, there was one that was not well-known in public his lifelong spiritual search, which led him from traditional Christianity to an exploration of a variety of metaphysical religions, culminating in the New Age. In many ways, the story of John Stetzer's long spiritual search mirrors that of millions of Americans who sought new ways of thinking and being in the involving metaphysical religions of the 20th and 21st century. In John Fetzer and the quest for the new age, Wilson not only explores the evolution of Fetzer's beliefs, but how he puts them into action by permanently endowing three funds that'll foster research into the scientific spiritual interface for years to come, and also aid in cultivating a more peaceful, loving, and inclusive world founded on the principle that we are all connected through one infinite force. It's with great pleasure that I get to introduce Dr. Brian Wilson. Dr. Wilson, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. And I was looking at my intro, and I, I wanted to ask a little about your background, because um, in terms of your personal background, you were in the Peace Corps. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I was in the Peace Corps for uh, three years. Um, and in fact, 
it uh, changed my life. Um, I originally, I, as an undergraduate, I studied medical microbiology, and the idea was I was going to go off and go to medical school. But at the end of that, I decided, well, I better go out and get some more life experience before I make the commitment of becoming a doctor. And so I joined the Peace Corps, and they sent me to Honduras for a couple of years, and then Dominican Republic for a year. And it was there that I encountered a whole different kind of cultural situation than what I was used to. And I got very interested in Roman Catholicism and in Honduras, of course, uh, I was living near the Copan ruins, which are these ancient Mayan ruins, so I got very interested in that. And then in the Dominican Republic, which of course is another Catholic country, but very different, um, I was living in a town that had a, a large population of Haitians. And the Haitians were practicing Catholicism, but also voodoo. So that was a real interesting experience um, to see this as a, a, a real living tradition instead of just something that you know, you see in horror movies and things like that. So that became just absolutely fascinating. And so when I came back, I abandoned my ideas of going to medical school and decided eventually to go on and get a PhD in religious studies. And I've basically been really teaching is. that for the last 22 years. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. And you wrote a book on new religious movements in California. What was the, the basis of that early book that you wrote? Well, um, uh, I was very lucky because uh, I had a, a mentor um, who was putting together a book series uh, on the, pretty much the, the kind of the main mainline denominations uh, in California, including, well, the Protestant traditions, Roman Catholicism and Judaism. But he also decided he wanted something on new religious movements, something a little bit more alternative. And so the book really deals with the uh, California histories of um, spiritualism and Seventh-day Adventism uh, and Mormonism and a variety of other traditions uh, in the California context. So that really got me into the study of new religious movements in the United States. So it was a real formative, uh, it was a fun project, and it was really a, uh, a kind of formative influence on where my career went. And did that lead you into Dr. John Harvey Kellogg and your book on him? Yes, because I'd already uh, done quite a bit of research on Seventh-day Adventism. And Kellogg uh, was born into the Seventh-day Adventist tradition, uh, which the tradition itself actually has its roots here in Michigan, in Battle Creek, Michigan. Uh, it became an official denomination in 1863. And Kellogg... Um, was born and raised a uh, Seventh-day Adventist and then went on to medical school, became a doctor, and then uh, uh, took over uh, uh, something called the Western Health Reform Institute, which was uh, the Seventh-day Adventist's kind of alternative uh, medical school, if you will, and he turned it into the Battle Creek Sanitarium, which by the early 20th century had become the, the, the biggest and best-known uh, kind of health and wellness destination in the United States, if not the world. And, of course, Kellogg himself is famous for inventing the cornflake. But the importance of <laughs> that, really, that yeah. Well, growing up in California, um, I only knew two cities in Michigan. I knew Detroit because that's where the cars came from. And I knew Battle Creek, Michigan, because that's where the cereal came from. 
So everybody knows about the cereal, but the cereal was really invented um, because the one of the founders of Seventh-day Adventism, Ellen G. White, uh, was a visionary who had visions from God and basically uh, messages from God. And one of these was that the Seventh-day Adventists uh, should really look after the purity of their bodies as well as the purity of their souls. And this meant vegetarianism. So the, the, the cereals were really an attempt to create a vegetarian food that people actually wanted to eat um, but, and would be an alternative to the typical breakfast of uh, you know, bacon and eggs. So there's an interesting sure. religious component to cereal that most people don't know about. I want to get into how you got involved with the Fetzer Institute. Was that because of your work with mm-hmm. Dr. John Harvey Kellogg and your book? It was. Um, uh, that book came out in 2014, and um, the folks at the Fetzer Institute, um, everybody in Kalamazoo, of course, knows about the Fetzer Institute because um, John Fetzer kind of loomed large over the city for such a long time. And uh, the Fetzer Institute actually has a beautiful campus uh, an administration building um, uh, on the outskirts of Kalamazoo. So I'd been out there a couple of times, and I, I knew some of the people working at the Fetzer Institute. But the Fetzer Institute also has an organization called the Memorial Trust. And the trust was set up to basically preserve the, 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 um, the legacy of John Fetzer. And so they were doing these legacy projects uh, which involved basically things like digitizing their archives and things like that. And they asked me if I would be willing to put together a spiritual biography of John Fetzer. And so I went out and I looked at the archives, and it turned out they were incredibly rich. And here was another person I could basically reconstruct the evolution of their worldview, just as I had done for John Harvey Kellogg. So I jumped at the chance and uh, had a sabbatical and spent a year out at the Fetzer Institute just simply doing research and writing. And it was probably one of the best experiences that I've had of my academic career. It was just so much fun. I can only imagine. I want to, before we get into the book, I want to give our Mm -hmm. audience a little background about Fetzer. I know that okay. he was an early pioneer of radio. That, That's right. And, and my, under, my understanding was that he started his own station in the late 1920s when he was in college at a local school in Michigan. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. John Fetzer, um, during that time, was also a Seventh-day Adventist. And uh, he was invited by the president of the Seventh-day Adventist College here in Michigan. Um, back then, it was called the Emanuel Missionary College. And today it's Andrews University. But back then, the president invited Fetzer to come up and basically enroll in college, get his college degree, and also help put together one of the first radio stations uh, in southwest Michigan. And so that's what he did. And the original radio station was run out of his dorm room until they finally found, uh, you know, uh, more appropriate space for it. And it was called WEMC, W Emanuel Missionary College, the Radio Lighthouse, And uh, John Petzer basically did everything. Uh, He was the engineer. He was the the programmer. He was the on-air talent. He did the advertising. So for him, it was it was it was a comprehensive education in how to put together uh, a radio station, how to put together and run a radio station. 
Wow. And he and did then, that without any manuals, right? Any manuals or any formal training. He just well, he, he, he had a little bit of training. Uh, he was living in West Lafayette. That's where he grew up, down in Indiana, which is by Purdue University. So he sat in on some classes, uh, took some cor- correspondence courses. Um, so he had a little bit of background, but it was a lot. I think a lot of it was just simply on-the-job training. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, is once he graduated, um, the university, or rather the college, decided that the radio station was actually too expensive to keep running. And so they offered to sell him the license. And uh, he managed to scrape up the, the amount, um, which is variously reported at either $2,500 or $5,000. In either case, that was a lot of wow. money for him back then. And he bought the license. And he eventually moved the radio station to Kalamazoo, where it became WKZO, which is still broadcasting to this day. That's fascinating to think that he had that early entrepreneurial desire and and took the risk to create the radio station that now still exists and broadcast at this moment. That's, that's, That's fascinating. In terms of Fetzer, his later part, I mean, he's well known for that part. And then he took and eventually became extremely successful in his public life yes. and yes. went on to own the Detroit Tigers for 30 yep. plus years. And he also had a very public uh, service as well. I know in the, in the night during World War II, he was um, an assistant radio sensor by FDR appointed him. And uh, can you tell us a little about that experience that you know? Well, um, he originally went to Washington, D.C. during the 30s um, because uh, his radio station could only broadcast during the day. And the reason for that was that, um, I guess, atmospheric conditions during the night makes it easier for high-wattage stations to basically reach a larger distance. So um, WKZO was in between two very high-wattage stations, one in Chicago and one in Detroit. And so he couldn't broadcast at night because it would interfere with their those two signals. So he went to Washington, D.C. to um, get approval for a directional transmitter that would have solved the problem. And he actually had to stay in Washington, D.C. for several years before the FCC and Congress basically uh, gave him the, the license to use this kind of transmitter. So while he was there, he met all sorts of influential people, including uh, FDR, who uh, did ask him to be the assistant radio sensor um, during World War II. Um, so Fetzer basically in that post um, came up with policy guidelines for radio stations, especially in terms of their news outlets, uh, in terms of what kinds of things they could broadcast about the war effort. And, of course, back then most of the stations voluntarily complied. Um, so it was a, for him – Professor, it was a great opportunity to get to know uh, broadcasters from across the nation because you had to interact with them. And then after World War II, just at the very end of World War II, 1945, um, he was tapped by uh, Dwight Eisenhower uh, to go with a group of uh, radio executives and, and journalists to go to Europe and basically assess the state of radio in Europe and especially in Germany. And they considered this tremendously important because if they were going to rebuild these countries, um, they really felt they needed a functioning mass media. And so Fetzer spent a couple of months over in Europe right at the very end of the war 
basically touring cities and, and coming up with a, a report that the occupation forces could use to basically um, get the radio uh, networks back on the air uh, in the occupied countries. Interesting. Yeah, I guess the, the flow of information would have been most, one of the most important things after the war ended yeah. and trying to reconstruct Europe and rebuild. That would make That's a lot correct. of sense. That's very, very yeah, vital. Yeah, of course, the occupation uh, forces wanted to control what was going over the airways as well, so um, there was also a political component to it. I think it's fascinating. I, I will get more into his uh, the later part of his career. I know he was also on the Forbes top list for wealthiest uh, individuals uh, mm-hmm. as well he was, for quite some time. Yeah, one of the 400 richest Americans at one point. That's a lot. Yeah. A lot of accomplishments in a short. I mean, it's a long life, but uh, you know, most of us live our lives happy to do one shred of that. <laughs> and having all these <laughs> things that he accomplished in, in such a such one lifetime is amazing. Yeah, I, I it is. It is quite amazing. I was gonna say, I, I have your book in front of me, and one of the things that impressed me about it was your title. And I wanted to see if you could explain the purpose of your title and the meaning behind mm-hmm. it, because we were talking about that before the show started. And yeah. I, I like to have my audience understand it. And it's, and if you can explain Johnny Fetzer and the quest for the new age and what that means to you so that our audience can mm-hmm. understand it better from your point sure. of view as the author. Well, um, um, at the, after graduating from Emanuel Missionary College, um, around about 1930, uh, John Fetzer and his wife, Rhea, decided that they were going to leave the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And his wife basically went off and became a Presbyterian, but John Fetzer himself was much more adventurous and went off and began studying all sorts of different metaphysical and spiritual movements. Um, and so he developed his own metaphysical worldview over the next 30 years. And one of the key components was this idea that human beings basically can um, can achieve a, a spiritual transformation, a personal or individual spiritual transformation through certain beliefs and practices. But the important thing for him was that he believed that enough people basically achieve this spiritual transformation, then that would catalyze uh, a transformation of the globe, a spiritual transformation of the globe, that that the world itself, that the whole population would achieve a higher level of consciousness. And he talked about this um, beginning in the 1960s as the new age. And this is an idea that the new new age is an idea that actually goes all the way back to the 19th century. But it became very popular in the United States uh, in the new age movement in the 80s and 90s. And so I think John Fetzer was an early kind of proto-new ager before people even started talking about the new age. And the problem is today, the New Age is still around, but a lot of people don't want to accept the label of New Ager because uh, it, it, it's become, um, what, uh, highly individualistic. And some people say it's very shallow and narcissistic, um, primarily because it's become so commercialized. And so the problem with talking about New Age today is that people associate it with people who are only interested in their own individual spiritual development without that important component that you're actually not working towards your own spiritual development, but to the spiritual development of your community and ultimately the world. And that's something that John Fetzer never lost, lost, lost sight of. Um, 
it was that 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 communal component, that global component that remained tremendously important. So for him, I, I talk about him as a kind of an old New Ager, a New Ager from the, the the point in the movement where the idea of global transformation was so important before it became so commercialized and kind of hyper-individual. Interesting. And I, I think there's a lot, there's a lot in, a, in the meaning of a title and what motivated you to pick that title. And it sounds like that encapsulates Setzer's um, worldview in certain ways and his, and his mm-hmm. own quest for his own standing of the concept of we are one, if you want to put yes. it in, in a simplified term. Uh, yes. I think that's great. I wanted to ask you regarding, because we're going to get into the book, I want to ask mm-hmm. you regarding the first chapter's title, and I know we talked about this off air as well, but I want to ask you about this just for the audience so they understand it. Meeting Jesus sure. in an elevator. Uh-huh. And that's describing the early chapter of, of Fetzer's life. And can you explain what you mean by that chapter title? Sure. Um, well, at a certain point, uh, Fetzer was a young child, and he was growing up in uh, small town Indiana. And he wound up at the local department store, a uh, department store called Shortel's. And I guess Shortel's was famous because it, it, had, a, it had an elevator. Um, which wasn't very commonplace at the time. So John Fetzer, as kids are wont to do, was playing around in the elevator. And he did something, I'm not sure exactly what, to create a problem with the elevator. Maybe it got stuck or something like that. And it terrified him, but he looked up and he had a vision of Jesus, a, a figure of Jesus. And he was holding on to Jesus's leg and Jesus looks down to him and says, I will never let you go. And this was a, an experience, a kind of mystical experience that Fetzer was talking about well into his 80s. So this was a, probably the, one of the beginnings of his spiritual quest and kind of the spiritual intensity that he had. That's very interesting. We mentioned yeah. his early upbringing with Seventh-day Adventism. Mm-hmm. In terms of, was he raised in that, or was that something that he delved into as he got older? Well, he was um, baptized a Methodist and went to a Methodist Sunday school for years. And then his mother, when uh, Fetzer was in his teens, uh, his mother joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And Seventh-day Adventism uh, is uh, an apocalyptic group. They're, they believe in the imminent end of the world. Um, and for whatever reason, this appealed to uh, Della, uh, Fetzer's mother. And Fetzer essentially followed her into the tradition. And for uh, over a decade, Fetzer was a very kind of devout Seventh-day Adventist. Um, And I think this was a very important tradition for him because um, he internalized essentially the ethical values of Christianity. And even though he left Christianity, um, he always remained a kind of Christian of some kind. And always look back to the the kind of ethical commandments of Jesus as being a touchstone. And so when he decided to leave the tradition in his late 20s, this was a very, very difficult decision for him to make. And luckily, one of the things I found in the archives were uh, a whole kind of cache of pamphlets and documents and letters that basically detail his kind of spiritual struggle uh, to leave the tradition, but eventually he decided uh, he had to go. Then he wanted uh, a greater freedom to basically explore his his spiritual life. 
And he made that break in, in 1930. And from then on, he basically pursued just a wide variety of different metaphysical and spiritual um, paths. Interesting. And I know your book discusses the various letters that he exchanged with the Madisons and yep. other parties as well. The Whites, I believe, were another one. Um, yeah, his wife, Rhea. Can you tell us a little about how that influenced his actual break with the church? Yeah, um, it, 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 he was he was sheltered when he was going to Emanuel Missionary College. Of course, he was in a very kind of closed environment. Um, and when he graduated, he uh, left and went to Ann Arbor with the idea that he was going to take graduate classes at the University of Michigan. And shortly before he left Emanuel um, uh, Missionary College, he encountered a minister who was a Seventh-day Adventist minister, uh, who came on and basically did a radio program. Uh, and Fetzer was fascinated by the fact that um, the minister really didn't talk about any of the distinctive beliefs of Seventh-day Adventism. So he followed this up with a letter to the minister asking him why, and essentially the minister admitted in a very poignant letter that he'd lost his faith in the particular dogmas or particular doctrines, rather, of the Seventh-day Adventist church. And this kind of got... That's her thinking. And at that point, um, he came into contact with a variety of people who had also gone through this same process and left the tradition. And the Madisons, uh, whom he knew from Emanuel Missionary College but had since moved on, uh, really provided a kind of sounding board uh, for his, his, his conflict. And they kind of guided him out of the, out of the tradition. So... Um, I think it, it would be interesting question. It would be an interesting question whether, if he hadn't had this kind of guidance and this support, whether he would have left the tradition. I think he would eventually, but the process probably would have taken much longer. It might have been more gradual over time, too. Might have been more gradual. Yeah, yeah. The the fascinating thing, though, is that um, Fetzer always retained very good memories of his time as a Seventh-day Adventist and have very good memories of uh, Emanuel Missionary College. And uh, later on, they gave him an honorary degree, and he came back, and this was um, much later, and gave a very gracious speech about just how important it was for his, his general well-being, his general uh, um, outlook, the kinds of things he learned at the institution. So he left without bitterness, um, but he was really kind of chomping at the bit to get on to new and more interesting kinds of spiritual paths. What I think is interesting is once he decided to make that shift, he then got involved with, I believe, Camp Chesterfield in the 1930s. Yeah. Can you share with our audience a little bit about what Camp Chesterfield is and how that, mm -hmm. how it, 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 it um, impressed upon Fetzer and his development with his beliefs. Yeah, I think Camp Chesterfield was tremendously important for where Fetzer ultimately wound up. Um, back in the 19th century, uh, evangelical groups would oftentimes have camp meetings where they would bring together uh, ministers and preachers who would basically preach to a crowd out, into a, out in an open field. And people would come and, and literally camp out for days, sometimes weeks, to listen to these revivals. Well, when the spiritualist tradition arose in the early 19th century, and of course spiritualism is all predicated on this idea that there are special people, mediums, 
who had the ability to contact the spirits of the dead. When this tradition uh, arose, they also adopted the camp meeting um, tradition. And a lot of these camp meetings uh, became institutionalized, um, so they became permanent. And people actually built houses, and there was all sorts of infrastructure. And, and in the United States, there were several of these spiritualist camp meetings. Um, and there are three of them that really survive today. Uh, one is in Florida, Casadaga, and one is in upstate New York, and it's called Lilydale. And a third one uh, is in Indiana, and it's called Camp Chesterfield. And so when Fetzer decided to leave the Seventh-day Adventist Church, eventually he found his way down to Camp Chesterfield and became absolutely fascinated with the, the mediums and the psychics that he found there. And he continued going to Camp Chesterfield uh, until the 1970s. So for him, um, Camp Chesterfield really opened his eyes to metaphysical traditions in general. One of the things Camp Chesterfield had was, a, and still has, um, a very good bookstore, very good metaphysical bookstore. So it's through the bookstore that Fetzer uh, learned more about the kind of the intellectual underpinnings of spiritualism. Uh, for example, the works of Andrew Jackson Davis, who was kind of the premier intellectual figure in the 19th century of spiritualism. And he also began to learn about theosophy, which is something that he continued to be uh, interested in until the end of his life, uh, and other traditions like uh, Rosicrucianism and Hermeticism. Eventually, Fetzer became a Freemason, and he became very interested in kind of the esoteric aspects of Freemasonry. And I think some of this was actually uh, catalyzed by uh, his readings, the books he brought back from Camp Chesterfield. And another very interesting and important um, influence on him that he probably first encountered uh, through the books of Camp Chesterfield was the, the readings of Edgar Cayce. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. And what, what, I know you mentioned Edgar Cayce in, in, in your book and they never mm -hmm. met each other. Is that correct? Cayce died no, they never met each other. Yeah. Cayce. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they could have, but um, they never happened to cross paths, but Edgar Cayce, of course, the um, the sleeping psychic uh, gave just yes. uh, you know um, dozens and dozens, hundreds and hundreds of, of channeled readings, uh, which were then published by his organization, the Association for Research and Enlightenment. And John Fetzer was especially fascinated by two aspects of Edgar Casey's readings. Um, one was Edgar Casey uh, channeled a lot of information about Atlantis. And the history of Atlantis, or kind of the prehistory of Atlantis, I guess. And so Fester was fascinated by that. But um, Casey also uh, uh, channeled a lot of information about alternative healing methods. Um, and Fetzer was fascinated by those. Um, and so even though John Fetzer never met him, um, the, the books, the, the articles, and other things that Edgar Casey produced or was produced by his foundation – um, became tremendously influential on Fetzer. That's so interesting. Um, I want to ask you about Tesla as well. Yeah. How did, uh, how did he influence Fetzer? Well, um, Fetzer was, always thought of himself as a radio engineer. That's how he started his career. And um, he was fascinated uh, ever since he was a young kid 
And he and his brother-in-law uh, built a small kind of very primitive radio, a crystal set, and they started pulling in voices and music from over the air. And, and Fetzer always found this, found it very magical that you could actually pluck these energies out of the air. And about the time Fetzer started getting into radio, he also started reading uh, the works of Nikola Tesla, who was, of course, the great electrical genius of the late 19th and early 20th century. And in Tesla, he found this idea of um, kind of a continuum of energies pervading the universe, both empirical and subtle. And this is something of reading into Tesla. I mean, it's there. Um, but he really found Tesla as, as kind of a... Um, what an, an influential and kind of catalytic fi figure for his own thinking, because Fetzer always believed that um, the the universe was essentially it was all energy, and energy for him was spirit. Spirit was energy, um, so the entire universe is essentially uh, a continual cycling of spiritual energies, and these energies are both empirical, like radio waves, but also subtle. Um, like the energies of chi and prana. And so this really formed the basis of his worldview, his monistic worldview um, that saw the universe as basically all spirit, all energy, and that there was a great central source that was essentially emanating this energy out as the basis of the creation of everything. So Tesla really figured large uh, in, in John Fetzer's uh, kind of early thinking and then later on, what's really interesting is then Tesla then becomes, after Tesla died, um, a number of psychics uh, and channelers and mediums claim that they have channeled uh, Tesla, who essentially keeps speaking even from beyond the veil. So Tesla continued to be a, an important figure within the kind of metaphysical world, even after his death through the purported channelings of a variety of different people. So... Fetzer found this just absolutely fascinating. Yeah. That is fascinating indeed. I wanted to ask you, one of the things I got when I was reading this, um, your book, I wanted to see if you could explain what Fetzer meant when he called, with, with what he called the freedom of spirit. Mm -hmm. It was yeah. mentioned in your, if you can explain that to our audience. Sure. Well, um, John Fetzer always believed that he needed, one of his missions in life was to encourage uh, individual spiritual transformation, always with this idea that it would eventually lead to uh, global spiritual transformation. But he was always quick to say that he believed in freedom of the spirit and that everybody essentially should have the right to pursue that spiritual path that they feel they're called to. So, And that means all religions and all spiritual paths. And Fetzer was something of a perennialist because he believed that no matter what spiritual path you choose, ultimately it would all wind up at the same goal. So for him, it was tremendously important that people develop themselves spiritually, but it was also tremendously important that they have the freedom to do it in the way they wish. And this freedom of the spirit then eventually becomes one of the cornerstones of the Fetzer Institute. That's so interesting. When you Now, when you go to the Fetzer Institute, do you have access as a general public to learn about all these things that you were able to have access to when you wrote your book, or is this something that was archived and you had special access yourself that you were able to create your book from? Well, at this point, um, it takes special access to get into the, the Fetzer archives, 
But the, through the work of the Memorial Trust, this body that was set up by John Fetzer to basically preserve his legacy, um, they're doing a digitization process. And the goal eventually um, is to have a lot of this material up on the web and available for people to look at. Um, so the ultimate goal is to have this, this material available. The Fetzer Institute itself is a foundation that basically uh, makes grants um, to various organizations and research projects. And so that's their primary um, focus. So it's not generally open to the public, but eventually, hopefully the, the materials I used, or at least uh, a lot of the writings of John Fetzer, will be available uh, up on the web. That's great. I know we delved a little bit into the Freemasonry and Fetzer's mm -hmm. involvement with it. It yeah. looks like he was heavily, he, he excelled in that. And I believe he was heavily, it's at least my impression from reading that part yeah. of the book. No, it seems like he, he got very heavily that involved in it. That's what I thought. He I did. He, to, to... he had a, a half-brother named Homer, Homer Fetzer. And Homer Fetzer was a Freemason and basically invited his, his uh, half-brother, John, uh, or he, he'd sponsored his half-brother, John, to become a, a member. And so Fetzer joined a, a local lodge, and there were a couple at that time in Kalamazoo. And what's interesting is Fetzer chose the lodge that uh, was really more focused and serious about the Masonic ritual and less about kind of the social aspects of it. So from the beginning, John Fetzer was fascinated by kind of the intellectual and spiritual component of Freemasonry. Now, he's interested in service, obviously, because that's one of the things that Freemasons do, and to a degree, the kind of social aspects of it. But it was really kind of the intellectual and spiritual side of Freemasonry that he found so fascinating. So he went through the first three degrees, and then there are two major appendant bodies, the York Rite and the Scottish Rite. And he basically went through each of those degrees. And eventually in 1969, he was invited um, uh, to become a 33rd degree Scottish Rite Mason, which is pretty much the highest thing you can get. Um, and so he began his Masonic life in the 30s, and it culminated really at 1969. Um, and throughout that period, he remained very interested in kind of the esoteric aspects of Freemasonic ritual. And so um, he read quite a bit about it. Uh, there are a number of kind of major sources that people can read. Um, but of course, part of the problem with researching this aspect of John Fetzer's life is that uh, a lot of what goes on in a, in a Masonic Lodge is, is private, it's secret. And so we can't know the full story of John Fetzer's involvement in Freemasonry simply because the organization itself uh, really guards its secrecy very, very carefully. I can imagine that. It's just interesting that he kind of went through all these different stages, or I should say different segments of spirituality mm -hmm. uh, well, for one person. I don't know that many people that can, you can say that about. Usually people are more dogmatic with their upbringing. Mm -hmm. They usually stick with the traditional Judeo-Christian religion or whatever it is. And I think that's fascinating that he went from just all these different segments um, and that, to me, that's that's I like that kind of eclectic approach, and his development. Well, one of the yeah, one of the things that he was always insistent upon is that we're always evolving spiritually, and so 
throughout his life, even into his, his last decade, he was always reading, always searching, always trying new things. Um, and so for him, it was really an, a kind of evolutionary process. And if it never came to an absolute conclusion, he didn't worry because he felt that death was just simply you're translated to a higher frequency, to a higher rate of vibration, and you continue your search after death. He also believed in uh, reincarnation um, and, wow. in fact, uh, had used the Ouija board and other psychic sources to basically trace back his past lives, he said, all the way back to Atlantis. And this was tremendously important for him because um, he felt that he had a mission, and the mission ultimately was the Fetzer Institute, creating the Institute. But he felt all his past lives had essentially been important experiences leading up to this life. So ultimately, he hoped that this was his last terrestrial life, but even after this, he would keep on um, exploring and evolving in the afterlife. That's, a, that's amazing. That's great. I was going to ask you regarding, he has um, you have several spirit photographs mm-hmm. yeah. um, in the book, and I was going to see if you could yeah. share with the audience the importance of the spirit photographs and, and how Fetzer sure. felt about them. Well, John Fetzer became very interested in tracing the genealogy of his father's family and his mother's family. And I think this started because Fetzer's father died when he was just a a young child. So John Fetzer never actually knew his father very well. And so genealogy was one way of getting to know his father through his, you know, extended uh, ancestry. The problem was, um, you know, this was back, he started in the 30s and 40s. Uh, on these projects, and there was there wasn't any Ancestry.com or anything like that bringing together all this information so people could actually just you know uh, pull it up on their computer. So he actually had to go out and look for documents and records in various different depositories and you know city halls, and he traveled to Europe and and tracked down records about his extended family back in Europe. The problem was uh, he, he continually ran up against uh, kind of um, blank spots. And so he used the Ouija board quite extensively to develop leads. And he claimed that he got a number of, uh, of important leads that allowed him to fill in the gaps of both his genealogies. Um, so for him, the Ouija board was, uh, was tremendously important. And then your question was... I wanted to ask you regarding the, the Ouija board itself. I know that he was into mm-hmm. divination as well. And yes. uh, I want to see if you could share with us the different forms of divination that he actually learned about and sure. what he practiced from, from the knowledge he acquired from being exposed to divination. Yeah. Well, one of the things he encountered in um, at Camp Chesterfield was – um, a number of different forms of divination that he hadn't seen before. So that's where he first encountered uh, tarot cards um, and uh, the Ouija board, which became tremendously important for his genealogy and also uh, basically following his past lives. Um, but he also came into contact with uh, a, a simple device, the pendulum. And he always carried around with him um, uh, a, a very simple pendulum, which was basically simply a, a, a lead weight on a string. 
And the idea behind the pendulum is that um, human beings have the power of mind over matter. And so whenever John Fetzer had a decision he needed to make, and he wasn't quite sure of exactly what he wanted, you know, he, 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 had, he was still vacillating, he would pull out the pendulum and uh, ask it a series of yes-no questions, and then depending, depending on which way it deflected, uh, it would help him come to a decision. So he used this in his personal life, he used this in his business life, and he claimed excellent results um, from using the pendulum. So he was really interested in all forms of divination. So tarot cards, Ouija board, pendulum, uh, he also consulted uh, occasionally astrologers. And um, he became very good friends in the 1960s with the, the psychic um, Gene Dixon, and so psychics became tremendously important in his life as well. Um, and until the end of his life, he, was, he continued to consult psychics about important issues having to do with his businesses or his family life or the Fetzer Institute. And that's, and that's very interesting that to think that he had this broad spectrum of, of approaches with it. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you regarding his involvement with uh, go, going back in the 50s, he had just gotten done with uh, being overseas with World War II. Can you tell mm-hmm. us about his role with Voice of America? Yes, he was tapped. Uh, Voice of America, and some people might not even know about this uh, in this day and age, um, it was a Cold War program that was uh, designed to basically beam um, – uh, Western news, news and information and entertainment as well uh, to countries behind the, the Iron Curtain. So those Soviet bloc countries um, that were not open to the West, the State Department decided that it would set up a series of transmitters uh, to uh, transmit news and information uh, in English, but also in uh, a variety of different languages um, to people uh in Eastern Europe. And they did this in a variety of different ways. And John Fetzer was involved in a couple of different trips uh, uh, to Europe to basically oversee the, the administration of the Voice of America and also to um, basically advertise it to the American public uh, in order to uh, convince people of the utility of it. And of course, now we know after the fall of the, the Soviet Union and the, the the fall of the wall, that a lot of people tuned into A Voice of America uh, over the decades, and it was a tremendously important kind of, um, what, window onto the West uh, during that period. So it was, a, it was a tremendously important program. And for Fetzer, it was an important kind of political use of radio, which um, he was very interested in. I think that's great. I um, wanted to ask you, regarding what Fetzer did, in the 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. what was his viewpoint about aliens and UFOs? Well, he was absolutely fascinated by by UFOs. Um, when he was the uh, assistant radio censor in the United States during World War II, um, he heard reports of mysterious objects uh, basically tailing Allied aircraft in Europe. And, of course, these are the famous Foo Fighters. And this was, you know, the kind of information that um, the United States essentially wanted suppressed at that time. Um, 
but it intrigued him that there might be something out there, UFOs out there, uh, making themselves manifest. And then in 1947, of course, there was that famous encounter with UFOs in Washington State that kind of made UFOs a, a, a topic of public conversation. And then the 1950s is really the heyday of the contactee movement of people who have claimed um, to actually have been uh, what in contact with space aliens. And they wrote just a number of different books, and Fetzer was just absolutely fascinated with these folks. Um, a lot of them came from theosophical backgrounds, so they were talking about ideas in the context of space aliens that made sense to him in terms of theosophy. And Fetzer, of course, again, he was always the engineer. He was always fascinated with new technologies. And so he reasoned that, okay, if aliens are visiting us, they must have some revolutionary technologies. What is this? And so that was part of it, too, that uh, really fueled his fascination. So UFOs during the 50s, I mean, uh, it was one of the things that he read extensively about. And it fit within his larger worldview. Um, and pretty much um, the next oh, 20 some odd years, uh, he continued reading in this genre. He was a real fan of Eric Von Daniken, uh, who was the guy who basically promoted the idea of ancient astronauts, that uh, space aliens had visited civilizations back in antiquity, and that some of the kind of cultural and the kind some of the cultural evolution that societies went through may have been fueled by these visits by space aliens. So again, something that Fetzer was absolutely fascinated by. Can you tell us a little about the Urantia papers? And how to yeah, to well, one of the UFOs. Yeah, one of the um, uh, texts. Uh, John Fetzer loved reading channel texts, and for example, the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus by Levi Dowling, which was a channel text from the early 20th century that he found fascinating. Uh, he loved A Course in Miracles, which is another channeled text. Uh, and he was also interested in the Urantia book. And the Urantia book um, is uh, a very long tome. Uh, I think it has close to 2,000 pages. And it was channeled by a man uh, in Chicago um, whose identity has always been something of a mystery. Um, but his channelings were recorded by uh, a, a psychiatrist named William Sadler, who eventually put them together uh, into a single volume, which came to be the Arantia book. And these are purported to be uh, channelings from higher beings, space aliens, um, that give all sorts of advice and also talk about this incredible kind of complex organization of the cosmos. And so some people find these uh, writings extremely fascinating, and Fetzer was was definitely one of them. Um, Rancha is actually the space alien's name for the planet Earth. Interesting. Interesting. Tell us a little about Fetzer and his, his quest with parapsychology. Well, uh, when he was, he was developing his interest in, in UFOs, he was also developing his interest in parapsychology. And part of this was that he always believed that science and spirituality should really harmonize, that they're two sides of the same coin. And he felt the best possible um, way of proving this was through parapsychological research. And, of course, parapsychological research basically 
is the attempt to bring into the laboratory a variety of different paranormal phenomena like um, uh, um, ESP and clairvoyance and remote viewing and psychokinesis and things like that. And parapsychology in this country um, really got a boost with the work of um, J.B. Ryan at Duke University. And he was the guy who really promoted it as a legitimate academic field. And by the time he died, parapsychology as a field had kind of been given grudging acceptance as a legitimate science. Um, during the 60s and 70s, uh, it was kind of a heyday of parapsychological research. And one of the first things that the Fetzer Institute focused on during the 1970s was funding parapsychological research. And again, for Fetzer, the whole point was that if we can prove the reality of psi or psi forces, this would go a long way to proving the reality of spirit and creating the situation where we can harmonize science and spirituality. That's fascinating. I think that's great. I, um, I know we talked off there before we got on the show about how Fetzer's worldview shifted in the 70s mm-hmm. and the foundation itself, the path and the focus of the foundation shifted as well. And I wanted to see if you could tell us a little about that and uh, is that also when he had J- Jim Gordon working with him? Yes. Um, he, By the end of the 1970s, he was becoming frustrated with um, parapsychological research. And he felt that it really wasn't achieving the results that he wanted. And he felt that a lot of the results w- were just simply replicating things that had been previously shown. Um, and so he decided uh, that the Fetzer Foundation, which eventually would become the Fetzer Institute, um, really needed to shift their their focus from funding parapsychological research exclusively to looking at applications of paranormal phenomena that might actually eventuate in uh, much more practical applications. And this really had to do with his uh, growing interest in mind-body health and energy medicine. Um, Fetzer at this time, uh, by the 1980s, was in his 80s, and he was uh, suffering um, uh, health problems, uh, having to do with old age, of course. And so this really turned his mind towards uh, um, coming up with alternative uh, approaches to health care. And so one of the things he was fascinated with was, again, the readings of Edgar Cayce, um, which back in the 30s and 40s had proposed all sorts of interesting new possible alternative health techniques uh, including energy medicine. And energy medicine is the idea that um, the human body essentially emits um, uh, uh, um, energy, and um, some of this is empirical, uh, some of it is is subtle, subtle energies. And the subtle energies, of course, are seen as the aura. And the idea was that these two energies that the body basically emits uh, are somehow essentially the same. And so that means you can come up with, potentially you could come up with technologies that could measure and use um, these uh, um, um, bio energies to basically diagnose and treat disease. So he entered into a partnership with the ARE clinic, which was uh, Edgar Casey Associated Clinic in Arizona, um, to basically 
research and develop technologies uh, that had to do with um, energy healing. And wow. you also asked about Jim Gordon. Um, uh, John Fetzer uh, really relied on a variety of psychics over his lifetime to give him advice. And in his last decade, um, he found a psychic he really liked, a channeler named Jim Gordon, uh, who was from Texas. And he felt that Jim Gordon's uh, channelings of the Great White, Great White Brotherhood um, were um, very revealing and, and very helpful. So he brought Gordon in to help him and a group of advisors called the Monday Night Group to rethink the mission of the Fetzer Institute. So the new mission of the Fetzer Institute, the, the shift towards alternative medicine and energy healing, uh, was underwritten in part by the channelings of Jim Fetzer, or uh, Jim Gordon, rather, I'm sorry. Interesting, very interesting. When you look at everything that Fetzer accomplished during his life, and mm-hmm. I know um, he had a very public life because of his role with the, the Detroit Tigers and his role with the, the media, you know, having all these relationships with his radio station and just being yes. being a local, uh, being an, an international celebrity, I would say, based on his success. What would be the one thing that you would share with our audience that you haven't discussed already about mm-hmm. Fetzer and his spirituality that you found fascinating from your work and your mm-hmm. research that you feel would be one of those things that if we heard about it, it'd be it'd be fascinating to us based on your your in your intimate relationship with his primary sources and everything you did mm-hmm. formulate your book? Well, um, John Fetzer, I think, was always um, on the cutting edge um, and always he was he was um, always kind of uh, ahead of the curve in a lot of different ways. And so the things he was into, parapsychology, alternative medicine, energy medicine, these are things that have been developed uh, after his death. He died in 1991. So just as an example, um, back in the 1960s, he became involved in funding research for um, uh, biofeedback. And before it had become kind of a, a, a major focus of research. And so one of the reasons why biofeedback became so important uh, in later decades uh, has to do with this initial kind of support that John Fetzer gave for it. So I think the interesting thing about John Fetzer is that his spirituality was kind of uh, ahead of the curve uh, before his time. And um, his his ideas about where the spirituality would lead in terms of practical results were also ahead of his time. So I think the book is interesting because, one, you can get a pretty good education in the history of metaphysical religions uh, in America by reading John Fetzer's story. But it's also remarkable um, just how kind of ahead of his time John Fetzer was. I think that's great. We're running low on time ourselves. I will okay. tell you that I found I found your book fascinating, and I highly recommend it to our audience. Uh, you know, one of the things I mentioned to you before we got on the air was if you look at a spiritual book, a lot of them talk about, meditation and different new age concepts, new age, different term than what your title is. Um, mm-hmm. when, when you compare that to what this book is and what you've created, I really like the way it, it 
plays into the historical development of the spiritual movement in America and how you traced it through chronological order and how you then tied it into Fetzer and the Fetzer Foundation. And to me, that's, that's fascinating. I, I, well, I like the way it was all tied together because you reached across the genre to do that. And that's what I think is going to make your book very compelling to anyone who picks it up and reads it. I also like the fact that with Fetzer and, his, and, and the Institute and the interplay between him and Casey and ARE, that to me mm-hmm. fascinates me very strongly. Um, it's I want an to interesting thank you for coming story. Out Before we leave, though, I want to make sure we touch on any websites that you can share with our audience where they can go sure. and learn more about you, more about Fetzer, and more about this topic. Well, uh, for people interested in, in purchasing a copy of the book, you can go to Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. The book is uh, published by Wayne State University Press, and it's available as a hardback and also as an e-copy, e-book. And uh, if you're interested in learning more about the Memorial Trust, you can go to uh, InfinitePotential.com. And there you can download a free PDF of the preface and first chapter of the book. And if you're interested in learning more about the Fetzer Institute, you can go to www.fetzer.org. That's great. How about you? If we want to learn more about you, where would we go for that specifically? Well, if you go to the website of uh, the Comparative Religion Department at Western Michigan University, I have a personal web page. Um, and uh, I guess the interesting thing on there might be for your listeners is the, the variety of courses I teach, which are listed on that web page. Excellent. Dr. Wilson, I appreciate you coming on our show, and I just want to thank you for spending your time. I know that you're – and by the way, I want to mention to our, reader, to our listeners that your book is currently rated number one on Amazon. So congratulations. Oh, fantastic. Thank that. you very much. I appreciate and, um, it. It's been a lot of fun – it's fascinating. It really is. And one of the things we talked about before we got on the show is when you can love what you do and have such a passion for it and, and being yes. able to realize that passion and creating a book like this and your other, and your other books as well. I just think it, it, it's such a huge accomplishment and, and, and it's something to celebrate. And I, I just look forward to our audience picking up this book and really learning more about Fetzer and, and about you and uh, your, 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 pers- your personal travels with this stuff and, Thank you very much for being on our show as a guest this evening. My pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. (laughs) Keep us posted about any future books that you do uh, or any projects you're involved in. I'd love to have you back on in the future. I'd love to come back on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Thank you. I just want to thank our audience for uh, tuning into this episode this evening. Once again, The book, Wilson, is John E. Fetzer and the Quest for the New Age. It's very informative for anyone interested in wanting to learn more about spiritualism and its development and evolution in American society. It it traces the roots of that with the backdrop and also talks about this fascinating individual, John Fetzer, and his accomplishments. Um, I can't, I can't speak enough for this book. I think it's very fascinating. I think it's great. And I, I think it's, it's just one of those reads that you'll enjoy and you'll be very entertained by it. We will be bringing you more episodes. And uh, check out our website, www.d, the letter D, 
socialpsychicradio.com. If you'd like to contact us at all, you can email me directly at info at D, the letter D, socialpsychicradio.com. Thank you once again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook. And don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock band like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, The Interviews. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.